podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it up. So welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take, another day, another hotel lobby. We spend a lot of time in, in hotel lobbies, particularly during fight week. We get well versed in skulking and, and killing time. It was the Canary Riverside the last couple of days. Today it's the Intercontinental. It is still Shields, Marshall, Mayer, Baumgartner fight week. We're on Friday now, so not too long before we head off to the way and it's been building very nicely all week. Now, we love a boxing insider on Macklin's Take, and today we have got one right out of the top drawer. He's here this week because he manages Claressa Shields, operating his own media company these days. But for a long time, he was on the good ship HBO. One of the skippers, I think it's fair to say. On the bridge, nice uniform, steering the ship. Uh, it's Mark Taffet. Mark, how are you doing? Uh, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yes, you just... Brought back some great memories. That was a great ship. There were times where I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio on the front of the Titanic. I was looking for my Celine Dion to sing. It was just me. <laughs> it's one of the biggest stories of the last decade of boxing, I guess, the last few years, the departure from the scene of HBO. And I always felt that at the time, maybe not enough was really made of it it was big news but in careers and particularly in boxing things come things go and people aren't too nostalgic or sentimental it's kind of the cycle of life but it was a major event and we would say me and Matt as, as big boxing fans and with people in the industry it's sadly missed I worked over 11,100 days at HBO and not one day did I call it work there, it was an institution. It was a very, very special company in the history of television and media. Some of the greatest executives and programming and marketing minds in, 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 the, in the history of, of the sport and the business came out of HBO. It was very sad when it, when it ended. Uh, there was nothing like it, and there never will be anything like it again. Boxing is a sport with no governor, and we at HBO felt a true responsibility to the sport and felt we had to help act as governors. We only did what was right, what we believed was right. We talked, we agreed, we disagreed, we voted, and in the end, we did what was right, what was in the interest of the sport. If a champion wasn't deserving of being uh, called a champion, we didn't do so. If a sanctioning body label wasn't appropriate, we skipped it. We didn't care what order the promoters told us to call the fighters, who's on the left, who's on the right. We called it the way we thought, with the appropriate fighter always listed first and on the left-hand side. And that was a very special place. We didn't do it out of arrogance. We did it out of love, out of passion. And it was a very, very... Uh, I was privileged to be there. And uh, it's sort of infectious. It gets in your body. And you wake up in the morning and you say, you know, I love this, and I, I want to make sure we take care of it. And I miss it. I miss it every day. As you can see me sitting here today, I still wear the shirts and the hats uh, proudly. I was very recently uh, nominated for the 2023 uh, Boxing uh, Hall of Fame votes that are coming out, the ballots this year. And proudly, it's because of the HBO uniform that I wore for uh, 25 years at HBO Sports. And um, it was great. We had, I had 200 fights on HBO pay-per-view over a 25-year career there. 200 of the biggest, best fights in the sports history. And it was very, very special stuff. And uh, I don't think there'll ever be anything like it again. You know, we, we, we did a podcast very recently with uh, Thomas Hauser, and we talked about how uh, the sport has been very much fragmented and because of that diluted. And you've got, you know, Al Heyman on PBC and Fox, and he just kind of keeps his stable over there. And you've got Top Rank on ESPN, and they're doing their thing. And, you know, it, the, the, 
there's no unity anymore. Everyone just wants to keep it. It's like everyone's a control freak. Everyone just wants to keep everything in-house. And it's hurting the sport, not just from a, a viewership point of view and, 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 and cross-promotions not happening, but also from... Um, you know, from, from um, keeping the sport clean, I guess, point of view, because everyone just wants to control everything. And, you know, as you just touched on there, Mark, HBO almost governed the, 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 uh, the sport because ultimately, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune and HBO were the paymasters. So they, they through passion and love of the sport and looking at the, not, not a short-term hit, but the, the wider picture, the, the longer-term strategy, they did govern the sport and they did make sure that A fought B and B fought C and the best fought the best. And, and you know, and, and they did, they did, it wasn't short-term hits either. They knew that they had to invest and maybe a fight had to be marinated and built, but they, they assured that that happened, didn't they? So the promoters can fool business people. They can fool people at networks. You know, guys who work for a living and aren't, true fans of the sport and that's most of the network tv executives and the networks themselves but there's one group you can never fool that's the fans the fans know when the biggest and best fights aren't being made the fans know when a star's on one side but the wrong opponent's on the other side and they vote with their feet and their pocketbooks they stop paying they stop watching and they walk away And when the sport is as splintered as it is now, with basically four major promotional entities, four major networks, and never the twain shall meet, you've got a problem. You know, when I was at HBO, there were really two of us. It was HBO and Showtime. We each had many promoters in our stables, so we had the chance to make the best fights. And we used to talk all the time. You know, I don't know if it's a secret or it's not a secret, but Jay Larkin, may he rest in peace, was a, was a great friend of mine. Jay and I used to talk all the time. What are you doing this night? What are you doing that night? I don't know what was legal, what was illegal. We just knew what was right. And we knew not to put our fights up against each other because it doesn't do the fans any good. So we would either look for different dates or we would stagger the start times. I used to love when we both went the same night. And I'd say, you want to go in earlier, la- earlier an hour or later an hour? You know, and we'll go the opposite. It was a great way to talk and do business because the fans won and they couldn't wait. McDonald's and Burger King on the same street means one plus one equals three or four. And that's the way we believed it should have been. In the depths of my research for fights down the years, I've often come across situations where I've read that Macklin say was supposed to fight this fighter in defense of his unified world titles but the fight didn't happen because HBO wouldn't have it and therefore the champion would rather vacate a belt than not be on HBO and and that's what you're talking about isn't it that standard where you're looking at this from the point of view of the viewing public and thinking okay well the sanctioning bodies might want that but that's not good enough for us. So there's something in boxing called a mandatory. We at HBO had a very different definition of mandatory. We didn't really care that the sanctioning bodies mandated a fight. Our mandate and what was mandatory was the best fight for the fans. That was always our mandatory. And we, we made mandatories every month we could. And that was getting the best fighters. Or if, if you couldn't get the two best and you knew there were great stories along the way, you know, sometimes there were four, six, eight great fighters in a division. Get them fighting each other. Get the fans talking. And let, the, let people earn their position in those big fights. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. But that's the kind of mandatory that we liked at HBO. I suppose part of what's happened as well with this sort of splintered, fragmented era of uh, television networks and promoters and uh, everyone keeping it in-house is the exclusive deals. Every promoter wants an exclusive deal because it massively empowers them. But the TV, when they give an exclusive deal, they're giving away their power to the promoter. Where HBO, like you said, there HBO and they didn't do exclusive deals. They worked with everyone because if you don't, if you only work with one promoter, you can't you can't force you could HBO couldn't do what you just, just spoke about then, could they? So these exclusive deals, they're great for the promoter, but I think they hurt the network, the fans, and ultimately the sport. Usually, before the end of one of those deals, both the promoter and the network realize. That it's, there's nothing exclusive about it except the fact that you're the only one that has it. 
What's much better is inclusive, not exclusive. And uh, when you do deals that bring other fighters and, and promoters and networks in, you know, sometimes networks talk and they say, okay, we understand we need to work together. So you work, you know, you take this one, but, you know, you're going to owe us one. We've got to get one back down the road. In the end, give the fans what they want. You never lose. Promoters don't lose. Networks don't lose. And if you look at the networks today, many of them are struggling and the viewership numbers are down because the fans know best. I suppose, like you said there, you, you, you and Jay Larkin were good friends. It, in that type of a, a strategy, mindset, having good relationships it, within the business is key. I respected when they did a great deal and got a fighter or sometimes even, quote-unquote, stole a fighter. Um, that meant they did their, their homework and they did their job at night. And it just made me want to get up the next morning and work harder and fight harder. It was like, darn, we're not losing. we got to get that one back. And, uh, but it was a very healthy competition. Also, though, I must say, there were only two of us. So even when you were divided, you weren't divided into pieces and fragments. You were divided into two large continents, and there were still enough people on each piece of land to make uh, big fights. So how, how do you see the current situation playing out? Well, uh, it's sort of like climate change. <laughs> it doesn't end pretty. It just gets warmer and warmer and warmer, and you start to sweat more and more. I hope that people come to their senses and realize that they need to make changes before it's too late. Because once people start to leave a sport, it's tough to get them back. You have to spend so much money in marketing and advertising to grab their attention. And by the way, in today's world, with younger fans, their attention spans are short. If you don't give it to them quick and when they want it, they move on. Look how quickly the world moved from buying regular subscription television to moving to streaming. In a short few years, the media landscape changed dramatically, a sea change. That can happen to an individual sport at any time. But I will say this. I do have faith and hold hope that networks and promoters will realize. And I think they're starting to show signs of realizing. I've heard Bob Arum. You know, it's funny. It takes a 91-year-old man sometimes to be the wisest and the smartest and come through. But Bob said, you know what? We need to make fights. We need to make fights together. And he's thrown that olive branch out lately. I give him a lot of credit. Hopefully others will do the same because that is the only way for success to be had. And, and it works. He, he said to us, actually, on, on this very podcast when we had him on a while ago now that there isn't enough, as he described it, collegiality between promoters, between networks now, and that, that that needs to change. That when back in the day when him and Don King were were butting heads and, and firing shots at each other, you know, they did business. They would they would get things over the line because it was never personal. Do you feel like now with social media, maybe, and the ease with which everybody can just fire shots at each other from a massive distance through this online platform that? It has got a little bit personal and people don't find themselves in the same room. Frank Warren and Eddie Hearn, for example, have never met in person. It's a different world in that sense and, and maybe not for the better. There were a lot of things I tried to do well when I was at HBO, but I know the thing I did best was stand between two parties that didn't want to be together in the same room or sit at the same table and I got them to sit down, talk, and usually make deals. I can't tell you how many times I got Don King and Bob Arum together. I once got Bob Arum to get on an airplane and fly to Florida and visit Don King at his house to talk about a fight. I got Don King to come over to a ballroom at the Las Vegas Hilton. I took an entire ballroom, put a little three-foot table in the middle of it, sat Bob on one side, Don on the other. And for the first 30 minutes, they each would look to me and say, tell him I said. It was just the three of us in, our, in a ballroom. You should have put it on pay-per-view. Yeah, well, you know, some things stay private and, you know, and, and, and they're best said and done that way. But I got them together. And uh, I always felt good when that happened because I knew we were doing what was good for the sport. And that's what you need more of. You need more of people who say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to bring people together because it's my goal to do so. I will say this. Recently, I've seen DAZN, Joe Markowski, come out and also throw that olive branch out there and say, let's start to work together. I think that you know Joe, who's a very smart guy, realized that 
you know, he's got a, a great network and a lot of money and a great opportunity. But if he doesn't get the fights to his subscribers, they're not interested in having subscriptions. So Joe's reached out and he's willing to make trades. And that means put one here and then put one there. And um, that's what you need. You need people to stand up like that and realize before it's too late. Um, so you got the one of the youngest guys in the sport, Joe Markowski, and one of the oldest guys in the sport, Bob Arum. Now that we need everything in between to come to their senses and realize the same thing, and I think we can really turn things around. A thorny issue for boxing fans, particularly recently, is is pay per view. And do you think that promoters and networks as well have got a little bit kind of slapdash in their in their attitude towards towards pay-per-view in that what we tend to hear is well if you want the big fights and and, and if we're going to be able to pay them what we need to pay them we've got to put it on pay-per-view and it'll think fights will get slapped on pay-per-view they're not really publicized they're not really built up there's, there's there's none of that it's just kind of right here you go if you want it buy it if you don't want to watch it then don't buy it hbo pay-per-views were were major major events and you were the ones who brought in 24-7 and the shoulder programming and, and made just a huge thing of it. It's not like that anymore, or at least rarely. I knew that pay-per-view was at its best when we did about four pay-per-view fights a year, about one a quarter. Pay-per-view is like a Super Bowl. It means you have the type of event where people want their friends and family over and they want to sit 8, 10, 12 people you know, on the couch and they want to cheer and scream and have a great time. If it's a fight that you can watch by yourself, it, it can't be on pay-per-view. It shouldn't be on pay-per-view. And I used to tell people, when you did pay-per-view right, the cost of pay-per-view per person was less than the cost of a movie theater ticket. And you think about it. If you're charging back then when I was doing it $50, $60 for the top fights and there were 8 to 10 people... It was about six, seven dollars a person, not more. Even today's world, where they're getting eighty dollars, you have ten people. It's eight dollars. That's less than the cost of a movie theater ticket. It's less than the cost, frankly, of the food and the drinks that people require for the night. That's when pay per view it's at its best. When it's a fight, when you can sit home by yourself, then you don't watch it and you don't buy it. And there, there are. Look, we had our years at HBO pay per view where you know I'm my my best and worst critic. There were times we had ten fights a year on pay per view, and I cringed. And we did it at times because we didn't have the budget in our monthly pay TV uh, HBO budget to cover. And the problem is, fighters have to know you're not going to get paid the same for a, pay, a fight not on pay per view. And just because you're on pay per view doesn't mean it's a big fight. Pay per view does not equal pot of gold. And uh, four times a year it works when you do 8, 10, 12, or 15 like you're seeing now. That's when you start to see people saying, oh, my God, we only did 25% of what I thought we would do. Well, that's because you got four times the number of fights on pay-per-view. And Matt, sometimes, just tapping into what, what Mark said there, if you're going to make it a special event, then in between times you have to indulge maybe in what in retail they would call kind of lost leaders. And that's what Sky have done this weekend with Shields Marshall. I'm hearing some figures quoted about what fighters are getting paid mark would know i don't expect you to to confirm or deny but a lot of money has been spent on this it's been given the pay-per-view treatment although it's not pay-per-view so money is going to be lost on this by sky i I would imagine but the longer term goal is get these eyeballs in and then when we've got a real big one and we put it on pay-per-view people will buy it and maybe new people who haven't previously bought it will buy it it's like anything you have to invest if you're trying to build something you have to spend money first before you can pull it back out it's like you know i'll, I'll mention golovkin because it was my year i fought him and he, he he when he came over to america from germany no one wanted to fight him he was the most he was world champion but the most avoided fighter in the world but hbo knew he was the real deal you know and, and he didn't speak english at that time as well by the way so it was difficult but tom luffler understood that it that it had to keep banging the drum had to push it push it hbo understood what it was that this wasn't a short term project this was a long term uh, gig and they built him he boxed three four times a year he was out you know this was on regular pay per view it wasn't hbo and they were probably probably overpaying you really to to get the opponents in to fight him and you know he weren't he wouldn't have been earning the money that he should have been because he understood it tom laffler understood it he 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 translated that to golovkin he understood it and his willingness to fight anyone and to get out and not just to sit and box twice a year he was busy and they built him up on regular hbo where he was consistently doing 1.2 1.3 maybe more uh million people watching him fight so then 
you know, eventually he got there because then when the Canelo fight, when they, I think was it was Lemieux the first HBO pay per view fight, I think they did with him and it did okay. I think like one hundred and fifty thousand buys, something like this. So it it wiped its mouth, but it didn't, you know, it didn't set the needle on fire. But but they stuck with it and it, they realised they the long term vision of it and it, it got there in the end. And when he fought Canelo the first time, you know, I, I, I'm sure that made a lot of money. First of all, I got to say, Mister Macklin. You know those numbers pretty well. <laughs> My God. 1.2 to 1.4 million viewers, 150,000 buys. No wonder you were so difficult. You could count. <laughs> you, no wonder you negotiated so hard for those fights. That's, that's actually very impressive. That was a long time ago. So, But uh, it's true. We knew that we had to put fighters live on HBO. And we would tell fighters, if you don't fight a few times a year live on HBO... You're not going to be on pay-per-view because, you know, you, you can't just show up for, you know, a million buys is a, is a great number for pay-per-view. But it's a small number, you know, in, in the annals of broadcast television viewership. And no one becomes a superstar with a million people watching them every time they fight. So, um, yeah, you have to put them on. You have to show them on the broader platforms. It's the way to do it. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty simple formula, and it's been proven for 100 years to work. So there's no reason to think it's any different now. So whose idea was, was 24-7 and all the shoulder programming and, and the build-up stuff? Boy, that's a great question. It's like some famous baseball home runs. There's 60,000 people in the stadium, and there's 6 million people who swear they were there and saw it and probably caught the ball. <laughs> so if, if, you, if, you, if you go back to HBO... You know, we had, you know, I would call it like our murderer's row, like the old New York Yankees had with Ruth and Garrick and DiMaggio and Mantle. And we had Seth Abraham, Ross Greenberg, Lou DiBella and myself. And we probably all took too much credit individually for things over the years. Um, But it was some combination of Seth and Ross, I think, who came up with 24-7. And, you know, Ross Greenberg was surely the greatest producer, sports television producer I ever met. And uh, I used to ask him if I could borrow his eyes and just see what the couch or the wall looked like in his eyes as opposed to mine. Um, and uh, he knew what great programming was. Um, and, and I think those were the two guys who talked most about it. And to the credit of the senior people at HBO, uh, they knew that until you had a big fight with Floyd Mayweather, it wasn't worth starting a new franchise like 24-7. So we kicked it off from Mayweather versus Gaddy. Back, I think, in 2006, and I'll never forget it. It was, uh, what, a, what a great show. Those guys were so different, and the fans loved it. And I, we actually found, I used to track and do research, our pay-per-view buys were 60 to 80% higher when we did 24-7 than when we didn't. And um, that's because fans got attached to the fighters. My wife used to say, after watching that show, I'd pay to watch those guys do tiddlywinks. You know, even if they weren't fighting, because you just had to see the conclusion. I think the best thing about boxing uh, is, are the characters, the life stories. I mean, how many other sports have had films made based around them that, that win Oscars? You know, boxing every time, Million Dollar Baby, Rocky movies, you know, Raging Bull. These are great movies, weren't they? So to, to tell the life stories the shoulder program before the fight you just you just get the viewers engaged they, like you know all the guys want to watch the fights because they're boxing fans but all the women want to watch it because they watch the 24/7 most boxers come from places that most of the rest of us don't know and those stories are incredible uh, i guess we know they build strength um, they obviously also build a lot of character and you know every great fighter. Every fighter reaches a moment where they've got to reach down deep and grab something out of their belly that they never thought they'd have to grab and that they need. And if they don't have a place that they came from to grab it from, it fails. They don't do it in the ring. And uh, that's why 24-7 worked because so many of these boxers came from places and had real life stories that uh, built their character and that most of us don't identify with that as fans. We were just amazed to watch and see how these warriors truly were built. And that's the thing. Because of the stories, you, you can tap into that in a way that you probably can't in other sports because of the access that you'll get from, from, from the fighters as well. And, and your wife's line is, is perfect, really, because sports are predictable. You can make a fight which looks on paper to be a great match, 
this can happen across all sports and then on the night it's it's terrible and there's just nothing you can do about that but you can make sure that the build-up is on point so by the time you get there the sense of anticipation is is that high that people almost feel like they've got their money's worth already and then if the spectacle itself really delivers as well it's it's almost a bonus because this isn't WWE we and, and that's not a knock on WWE they do their thing because they can they can guarantee a level of entertainment but it is unpredictable do any fights spring to mind that you thought were going to be fantastic and then just ended up being an absolute dud hey 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 kids hey everybody sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher how you doing sir I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! I can't help but remember the last three rounds of Oscar De La Hoya versus Felix Trinidad. And, uh, you know, I I saw Oscar the first six rounds of that fight just dominate Trinidad and uh, and show what a great boxer he was. And he just confused the heck out of Trinidad. And somehow that was not Oscar De La Hoya those last few rounds. I don't know who that was and I don't know who gave the direction. Um, but that, you know, that was one of the great disappointments to see how that fight ended. And I know boxing decisions are rendered by counting round by round, but those last three rounds seem to count like 30 rounds in the eyes of the judges. And maybe some of them redid their scorecards. Who knows what happened at ringside? But you don't want fights to be like that or end like that. That left the fans with a really, with a bad taste, frankly. And, um, you know, that, that's just not something we were thrilled with. So let's just talk a few highlights. There, there are so many fights that you put on, of course. But what, what about the first? Was was pay per view mainly your responsibility? Is that okay? So you, that was your. Well, you know. I, I had an incredible privilege. I came out of Wharton, the Wharton Business School, as a finance major, and when I worked at HBO, my first seven years at HBO, I worked in the finance department, and the CFO, my mentor, is Jeffrey Bucus, who became the CEO of the entire Time Warner Corporation. He was the CFO at the time, and he said, I want you to go around to every division and help them with a strategy about how to spend their money wisely and and increase the profitability of the company. And when I got to the sports division, Seth Abraham said, tell me everything exactly as it is. And I, I did research, and I found that in six cities across America, there were microwave dishes on top of people's rooftops, and some Sugar Ray Leonard fights were being sold just in a few cities to those houses, and they were generating more revenue in six cities than we were paying for national rights to Mike Tyson fights. So I didn't need a Wharton MBA to draw the conclusion that when they got to 16, 20, 60, 100 cities, we were out of business. So I said, we have to start this thing called pay-per-view, and we got to do it now. And we launched it defensively. I wrote a business plan, and they all, when I presented it, everybody said, well, you wrote the plan. We don't know what you're talking about. Do you want to start it? And that's how HBO pay-per-view began, and I was the fortunate guy to have you know, penned the document and had the chance. So um, you know, it, was, it was an incredible privilege and a great opportunity. We did our, but I'll tell you what we learned very quickly in two short months. Our very first fight, Holyfield versus Foreman, April 19th, 1991, Trump Plaza, Atlantic City. 1.4 million buys, $53 million in one night. We paid $30 million for the fight, and Bob Arum and Dan Duva said, I hope they make a nickel because if they lose too much money, the golden goose will be gone. When they found out we generated $53 million, they were kicking each other. Why did you sell the fight so cheaply? They're yelling at each other. It was 10 times more than we ever paid for a fight. But, of course, they were second-guessing. The very next month, we had, and you will appreciate this, a magnificent fight between two incredible middleweights, young men at the time named James Tony and Michael Nunn. And we were saying, this is an amazing fight. And we're charging 25% of what we charge for Holyfield Foreman we got to do 25% of the buys, 300,000, 400,000, right? We had no idea. 19,000 buys. 
a month after Holyfield Foreman. And Seth Abraham, God bless him, penned a line I'll never forget. He said, Mark, now we know pay-per-view is a business of hits and misses. And it's either so big that you know the bus is coming right at you or it isn't. And I never forgot that. And it still rings true today. What was always a big, big hit, I, I felt anyway, in the 90s was heavyweight boxing. Heavyweight boxing's the, the that is the golden goose, isn't it, in, in the sport generally. But heavyweight boxing in the 1990s was just such magnificent, total and utter chaos. It, it kicked off with Buster Douglas beating Tyson. Then you've got Tyson going to prison, then coming out. You've got Riddick Bowe chucking a belt in the bin. Holy you've field. got a fan man. You've got a biting of ears. You've got Foreman coming back. It was... It was absolutely mental, and, and there were massive fights all over the place, which must have been just manna from heaven. You, you wouldn't have done them all, but I'm sure you did, did plenty. Yeah, well, you know, people say, and it's true, there's boxing and there's heavyweight boxing. The heavyweights have a whole different aura around them. And when you have an era of Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, Riddick Bowe, Mike Tyson, George Foreman, and those were just the top guys. The second-level guys, Tommy Morrison was a great story, Ray Mercer was a tough fighter. Andrew Galata had some great fights, trilogies, you know, on and on and on. There were so many big, tough fighters. And um, yeah, th- those heavyweights, they generated revenue. It just was ka-ching, ka-ching every time they got in the ring. I mean, but Oscar de la Hoya would have been huge in the 90s as well, wouldn't they? You know, Oscar was the first of the non-heavyweight pay-per-view stars I started HBO Pay-Per-View in 91. Oscar came out of the Olympics in 92. So really, he and I professionally grew up together. You know, I was fortunate to televise 25 of his fights on Pay-Per-View. And I'll never forget when George Foreman fought Tommy Morrison back, I believe it was in early 1993. We were on a train and George was sitting on the train. Bob Arum did that old whistle-stop tour, we called it. He went from Boston to New York, to Philadelphia, to Washington. And we would do the press conferences, you know, on the trains and then leave and go to the next city. And George Foreman sat there and he looked at me and he said, boy, this pay-per-view thing, I wish I was 10 years younger. The amount of money that people are going to make. He says, that guy, that kid sitting there three rows in front of us on the train, he's the one that's going to make the money. That kid was Oscar De La Hoya, who fought on the undercard of Foreman Morrison and George, how brilliant were those words? He, it was so true. I think Oscar generated seven or eight hundred million dollars in pay-per-view revenue. Just incredible. And um, Oscar also came along. You know, every fighter has a time. Oscar came along at the time where Latinos in America were booming, not just growing in number, but growing in economic power. So when you put Oscar Del Hoya out there, the Latino fans went crazy, and he became their matinee idol and their superstar. Uh, Floyd Mayweather then came along at the time when the internet was booming, and African-American websites were coming out left and right, and Floyd became a fixture on those African-American websites. It crossed him over and made him big. You know, the right fighters at the right time made all the difference in the world for those executives like me lucky enough to be present at the time. I got an interesting one actually about Floyd Mayweather when uh, I remember speaking with Bob Arum when I was out in America, uh, I think on one of Conlon's fights and he, we talked about how, uh, you know, marketing and, and different things, promoting and he said, you know, I've got to say, he said, I never re- I, I missed the urban trick with Floyd Mayweather. You know, we tried to promise pretty boy Floyd Mayweather and he, you know, he was a great, exceptional talent, but we didn't really cross him over. But, you know, Al Heyman being involved with Jay-Z, Beyonce, he seen it, didn't he? Yeah, and um, I actually learned my lesson because of Oscar, because a niche market, so to speak, Hispanic, Latino pay-per-view, became a giant market. And, you know, our sport in America, in America, the two greatest fan bases, even to this day, are Latinos and African Americans. When you go to live boxing fights, the only time you see kids and even young kids, children, at the fights are when Latinos or African Americans fight. And I'll never forget it. It made a great impression on me. And we knew that that's why guys like Mayweather and uh, De La Hoya became superstars. And African-American and Latino fighters after them became superstars and pay-per-view stars because those doors were opened by those two guys. How difficult is it, do you think, for networks to keep their finger on the pulse of that kind of socioeconomic change to identify what and who the next big thing might be because it's really important but 
throughout our careers, and you'll have seen it more than us, obviously, you have this kind of paradox almost where people in high-ranking TV exec positions, until fairly recently, probably still the case in the majority, might be a kind of 50-plus-something white guy who's trying to get his head around what the 20-somethings from all different ethnicities and backgrounds are into. And he can't possibly know, can he? So how do you, how do you do it? You know, I was fortunate. As a kid, I grew up in my father's restaurants working in the kitchen. And I worked with 20 different nationalities and ethnicities of, of guys in those kitchens. And they spoke different languages than me, literally and also figuratively, cult- culturally. I learned how to listen to them, interact with them, talk with them. And that is what made me a success as a pay-per-view executive because I understood and I listened. If you're not attuned to the fans, some executives are programming-based, some are production-based, some are distribution-based. you got to be fan-based, consumer-based. And I was lucky. I was raised to listen to and understand what what, what, what people were made of and what they wanted. And that helped me make great fights and more importantly market fights appropriately Um, most executives don't have that kind of background and if they focus on programming distribution uh sales revenue that you can miss the boat very easily and you got to do what you do then if you don't know is you you know what you know and you know what you don't know you got to be honest with yourself go out and do the research hire firms to do research and tell you what the pulse of the fans are then you won't make those mistakes. And those that are humble enough to understand that and make those decisions that way, they're the successful ones. Matt, that's key, isn't it? Because, yeah, that's the perfect line. You know what you know and you know what you don't know. And, and you picked out Mayweather there, and he's, he, he is an amazing example because if you think about it, you think about that carnage in the 90s and you've got these incredibly bankable heavyweights, no-brainers, if you like, who are going to guarantee a certain amount of money. Tyson, I guess, would be you know, at the, at the vanguard of that, that particular cohort. But no one would have seen it coming with Mayweather, I don't think. He was an outstanding fighter, and really good to watch, actually, in, the, in his earlier career. But by the time he was hitting the massive numbers, really, he was one for the boxing purists. Yet he did these huge, huge figures. I still can't quite get my head around it. Uh, let me just tell you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's because... It wasn't the boxing purists that made Mayweather a pay-per-view megastar. It was Floyd, his culture, his personality, his attitude, and being all over those African-American websites where all of those fans were. They weren't, they weren't big boxing fans. They became fans of big boxing. And Mayweather became the poster boy for big boxing. They bought Floyd because of his attitude. The truth is... Floyd Mayweather's persona outside the ring was usually better than his persona inside the ring. His fights very often didn't look like his persona. They were beautiful maestro masterpieces, works of art. But that Mayweather outside the ring, that's the one you were paying for. And Floyd knew it. He was brilliant that way. And he always delivered on those African-American websites. He, He delivered to those fans what they wanted to hear and needed to hear. And that's why they bought his fights. Yeah, I think there were two things. I think the the pay-per-view with Oscar De La Hoya, because he, he piggybacked a little bit off the profile of De La Hoya, but also that switch in marketing from Pretty Boy Floyd to Money Mayweather, which I think was the, probably came from the Al Heyman influence, who you know came from the, the music background, and he said, that's the way you've got to be promoted, that's the way you've got to be marketed, and you've got to push it out there, you've got to talk money, you've got to be flash, you've got to be bling, and that's what, as you said, it, it didn't really matter, it, the... the those people that were buying into that was less concerned about his performance in the ring. It was just they were just on this ride, weren't they? Oh, the personality was everything. When you went to a Mayweather fight and you walked through the lobby of the Las Vegas hotel on fight night, boy, what a show it was. Oh my God. I mean you couldn't believe what was going on there. The action, the players. It was fun. 
You knew you had a scene. It was, you know, it was like some of the scenes you saw when Ali fought Frazier, you know, back at the Garden in the day many, many, many years ago. Um, but Floyd did it in current times, and he brought people out who really, you know, added the bling to the ring, as I like to say. And that's what made it fun and made it interesting. There was a fascination. Another point you raised, though, about Oscar De La Hoya, Oscar was the gatekeeper. If you look back at fighters who became big pay-per-view stars after Oscar De La Hoya, almost every one of them fought Oscar De La Hoya and then became a pay-per-view star. Remember this, Mayweather was doing two, 300,000 pay-per-view buys. He fought Oscar De La Hoya, he went to a million, he became money Mayweather and he started doing two million. Felix Trinidad was doing 150,000 pay-per-view buys. He started doing five, six, seven hundred thousand after he fought Oscar De La Hoya. Bernard Hopkins, one of the greatest fighters I ever saw. But until he beat Oscar De La Hoya, he wasn't doing four, five hundred thousand or more pay-per-view buys like he did with Roy Jones uh, and, and Jermaine Taylor. And, um, you know, there's the story. After Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao was doing, look. Pacquiao had incredible fights and, and, and rematches and trilogies with Marquez and Barrera and Morales. You know, those four guys, the four horsemen, they were incredible with Pacquiao in that group. You know, he always said he fought Mexican style and the Mexicans loved him. But those fights did three, 400,000 buys. He fights Oscar De La Hoya and all of a sudden Manny Pacquiao is doing a million buys every time he steps in the ring. Oscar De La Hoya was the gatekeeper, and people knew. One thing, you know, Oscar lost half of his big pay-per-view fights. The fans didn't care. They knew when he got in the ring, he was going to give him not 100%, not 150, 200%, and they couldn't wait to see it. And they respected that and admired it, and that was another lesson to boxers. Give the fans what they want to see in that ring. They'll be back. Win or Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Loose. So I threw his name out there a few minutes ago, Iron Mike, Mike Tyson. What was he the was he the silverback throughout the time you were doing this in terms of just guaranteed bank if, if you had pay-per-view? Was he the one you had to have? He was more showtime, wasn't he, Mark? Yeah, Mark. you know, he, but if you were in that business, was he the well, one Well, I was in that have? business because I spoke to Jay Larkin about every fight we all did. And so, you know, you felt like you were a part of it. And we used to trade secrets. When I say secrets, like how do you market? How do you publicize? What do you think? It was so much fun. I, I admired that they had Tyson. We had him also, though. For, for, for a number of, we had him in his earlier days then he fought a number of fights on Showtime and then you know then we had him with Lennox Lewis uh, you know when he came back by the way the first Holyfield Tyson fight was scheduled for November 1991 on HBO pay-per-view and then I got a call one day I was sitting at the Mercer versus Morrison fight in October of 91 at the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City and Wally Matthews comes running over to me saying Tyson's out Tyson's out and I believe at the time he ended up going to jail uh, at the time, uh, you know, charged with rape. And then when he came out, it took many, many years until the fight got made again. And, and then it happened on Showtime. But back to your question. Um, Mike Tyson did more buys per pay-per-view on average than any fighter in history until Floyd Mayweather came along. Tyson was it. And that's because Tyson completely transcended the sport. I mean, my grandmother used to talk to me about Mike Tyson. You know, she had to see him fight. She had to watch him fight. It was, you know, she was 70-something, 80-something years old. She was talking about Mike Tyson. That was unheard of for boxing. Mike was excitement, pure excitement, and he was combustible. You never knew when that bomb was going off or when that spark was turning into a forest fire. You had to watch Mike Tyson. He just, he just had an aura, didn't he? Oh, my he, God. Just an aura, man. Yeah. I remember, I remember watching, a, I think it must have been an HBO documentary, and it was um, Michael Spinks' manager saying he always used to go into the changing room of the other guy just to say, wish, wish him luck. He said, when he went, and then he'd come back and he'd give, you know, he'd say, he'd give a few little pointers to Michael Spinks. He said, anyway, I went, I went into the changing rooms, he said, Mike Tyson was like punching the wall full blast, and it was like bits of gravel coming down like and he just said <laughs> he said my stomach turned inside out I went back into Michael Spinks and said good luck champ <laughs> just got out there Listen, I, I saw I saw Tyrell Biggs 
Larry Holmes, and Michael Spinks when they fought Mike Tyson. I saw each one of those guys do their ring walk into the ring. What I remember was their skin was a bit pale and pasty, and their eyes were wide open like saucers. They knew what they were walking into. And in the case of Biggs and Holmes, they fell like trees when Mike hit them. And, uh, and you saw Michael Spinks, 91 seconds. I'll never forget it. Most people came in around late or went to a bathroom, and they missed the fight. I'll never forget it. That's what Mike Tyson did. Mike Tyson won his fights before they even got into the ring. That's how intimidating he was. And with him, people didn't want to see any more than a couple of rounds. You, you never heard people say, oh, we're Tyson, we pay a hundred bucks or whatever it was at the time. And, you know, you get five minutes of action, you know, that's not value for money. People felt robbed if they didn't get a quick, violent knockout and some chaos. That's, that's, that's yeah, what they Yeah, I never heard anybody talk about that great decision when they watched Mike Tyson fights. <laughs> that was not part of the game. No, listen, you didn't care whether it was one minute in or one hour in. You were there for the fascination. You were there for the explosion. And that's what nobody delivered it in the history of pay-per-view boxing. Nobody delivered it like Mike Tyson. You know, I, I was stuck to the TV. The only good thing about not working some of those Mike Tyson pay-per-views was I got to sit and watch them on television. And I couldn't wait to see him fight. So what were fighters like to, to deal with when they got to that kind of pay-per-view apex? You know, down all, all the different ones that you've, you've been involved with, there have been so many, but it's not an easy business. They can be very compliant at times. They can also be very difficult. You know, you must have had your moments. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, Mayweather and De La Hoya I'll use as examples. I loved working with them. After every pay-per-view fight, Oscar De La Hoya would be, right after the fight, still perspiring, still sometimes bleeding. And before he did anything, he would say, where's Mark? And I'd come in the back and he would say to me, tell me about the pay-per-view. What do you think? How did we do? He became a businessman through those pay-per-view fights. Floyd Mayweather used to sit with me after the press conferences and say, let's talk about creative. I think we should do the commercial this way. I think this is what it should look like. Those fighters that took a part in their careers and took an interest in and had the, the, the savvy to talk about their fights and how they should be planned. They knew what they were doing. They knew they were entertainers outside the ring as much as they were fighters inside the ring. Floyd and Oscar talked to me before and after every fight, and that was a big part of their success. They knew what they were doing, and they knew why they were there. They got it. They got it, and they wanted to improve. Yes. And you know what? Fighters should take, and I always admired, they should take their careers into their own hands. Of course, you have to work through a promoter, but it's always good to have the interest and the acumen to ask those questions. Make everybody accountable to you and responsible to you because it, you know, fighters should never be taken advantage of. One of the reasons I became a manager, believe me, I wasn't looking to you know, carry gloves and make sure that the towels were there. That's part of the job, but I wanted to make sure that fighters weren't taken advantage of, like I had seen too often during my years at HBO. And what I love the most is when I can look a fighter in the eye now and know that I did my best job with integrity and they got every dollar they were supposed to get. So if it was still going now, if you were still in that role at HBO now, who from the current boxing scene fighter-wise would you look at and just think, okay, we have to have him, we have to have her, we have to have him. Who would be, your, who would be on your list? Well, I could tell you number one, you would have already seen Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua fight at least once, if not two or three times. You know, there's certain fights you just have to make. And, um, you know, that was one of those fights that should have been made. And, you know, promoters and networks learn their lessons. You know, you don't make the right fights at the right time uh, and they're past their dates and then, then you miss the opportunity. That fight had... 2 million to 3 million buys written all over it. Not only was it the biggest fight in the sport, it was the biggest fight between two guys that together are probably close to 14 feet tall and weigh 600 pounds. I would market 14 feet and 600 pounds of fighter if I was marketing that fight. you got to do it. That was a worldwide event. Say no more. 
Yeah, we've been talking about this the last few years. I mean, the, the four heavyweight belts have been owned by two people. The identities have changed, but by two people for a long time now, since, since Anthony won the WBO from Joseph Parker at the end of March 2018. But we've never had a fight for Undisputed, Matt. It was close with Joshua and Wilder, but it didn't happen. And then, yeah, I know it's, it's, it's Usyk and, and Fury now, but it, we're, we're, run, we're running out of reads. We're running out of excuses. It's a travesty, and we are running out of excuses. But I don't, I don't know if we're even any closer to it because you, you, it, it, it's, a, it's not about the fighters, I don't think, or the willingness for them to participate against each other. I think, it's the, I think there's what we talked about initially at the start of the podcast which was the the fra- how boxing's fragmented and how everyone's trying to keep everything in house and control everything is the promoters that've got exclusive deals with certain networks want to keep everything over their side of the street and their sort of lack of willingness to meet in the middle and get a deal done is is what's stopping this undisputed heavyweight title fight happening i believe listen here's another one today how do you not see earl spence against terence crawford as a boxing fan, that's the fight I want to see. Uh, how do you not see it? You can't have a sport at its best and have a fight like that not happen. And there's a reason 2022 is the year of the women. And that's because the women are showing that they will fight each other and nothing will get in the way. No promoter, no network. The best demand to fight the best. Clarissa Shields tells me every fight, get me the biggest, best fight you can, and let's go. That's it. It's pretty simple. That's how we make history. You deliver those fights. You know, Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano got in the ring at the right time. They went to Madison Square Garden. By the way, what a brilliant move. That fight could have been done in a lot of places. You went, the Irish community, the, uh, the Brits... No better place. You go right there. Puerto Ricans. I did so many Miguel Cotto, Felix Trinidad fights in New York City. You, you put the Irish and the Puerto Ricans there. Look at the fight you have. And, and it worked. It sold out the garden. Clarissa Shields, when we talked about the need, the, the, the must of fighting Savannah Marshall, she said, and we're going over there to do it because that's where it has to happen. And you gotta, I give Clarissa all the credit in the world. She didn't think twice about saying the fight should happen in the U.S. She said, we're going right there. That's where the fight's going to be the biggest. The fans are going to love it. And I'm going to the Lions then, and I'm taking it from her. That's why women's boxing is working. Let me tell you, in MMA, the women became as big as the men. And I think in boxing, if the men don't get their act together, the women are going to do the same thing again here. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. I think I think that's entirely possible. You, you see the groundswell behind women's sport in the UK at the moment off the back of the England women's football team winning the Euros. That was huge. And, and what I'm experiencing is there is an increased desire for people to go and watch sport to, to go and go to a sporting event because they want to be entertained they want to do something new they've got young children who are into it maybe but whereas they weren't the parents and they're looking around for things that that are going to be fan friendly and they don't necessarily want to go to men's pro football soccer as we call it here because that could be quite intimidating and not particularly enjoyable the fans aren't treated really that well and I think what women's sport is doing particularly well at the minute is they are making it accessible and they're making it enjoyable and they're making it something where if it's not really... An inclusive environment yeah, exactly, as well, exactly. a family environment. And sport's not always like that. I think in America you do a much, much better job of making sure fans leave somewhere having had just a great time, whatever happens on the pitch. And that, I don't think that's always the case here. Well, that's funny because I'm jealous and always have been of the fever pitch of the UK boxing fans. 
I mean, we were talking before about this. I remember 6,000 Brits sitting in the lobby of the MGM Grand for four days, and the MGM Grand CEO came over and said, what are we going to do? I said, what are you going to do? You're going to make sure every slot machine works, and you make sure the bar stays open. They'll leave Sunday, I promise you. And, you know, there, there's nothing like, uh, I love the, in boxing, I love the, the, the British fans and their passion. Oh, no, I 100% agree with that, that there is nothing like that. But it's just from the outside, if you're yeah. kind of totally new, that, that might look a bit Tell intimidating. What, no, that, that happened, mate, where there was something else, you know. That was a, <laughs> that was a, that was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, mm-hmm. I believe. You know, it was like you had two polar opposite personalities. They were both undefeated. You know, from our point of view over here, it was $2 to the pound at the time. Yes. You know, it was, it was just like the, the amount of people that travelled over that fight was just unbelievable. I'll tell, let me tell you a great story about that fight. So when that fight was made, you know, every fighter always wants to get one up on the deal. And Hatton wanted a lot of money. So people who were doing the deal, I'll keep the names out of it, said um, on the Mayweather side, let Hatton have the UK and we'll get him cheap. So they got him cheap from a guaranteed dollar perspective. But when the pay-per-view buys and the dollars were counted... I believe Ricky Hatton made the same amount for that fight that Floyd Mayweather did because over 1 million pay-per-view buys were sold in the UK. And I will tell you this, Floyd Mayweather is a smart guy. Never, ever, ever, ever made that mistake again. His deals changed forever. And that's why he is Money Mayweather. No, I remember the build-up to that really, really well. I didn't, I didn't go, but I watched it around at a, a mate's flat in, um, in Baker Street in London and I was glued to the 24-7 and stayed up all night and watched it. And it was... Yeah, it was it was absolutely mega. It was it was superb. We, we had, a, had a starring role in that. <laughs> yeah, do you remember much of it? <laughs> I don't remember much of it. Half playing out in real time, but I remember sitting in the uh, studio fifty four in the MGM when the final episode was played, and and and, and the, the scene came on where I was covering from the night before, and I remember Oscar De Laura and a few of the uh, Golden Boy guys turning around laughing, and I was just cringing. I could feel the sweat coming down my head. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well we won't we won't keep you too much longer, Mark because we've all got to push off to the way in before. We didn't miss the Shields Marshall fight, did we? No. <laughs> okay, it's been a long time here. <laughs> um, but just from, from our point of view as, as, as commentators and as members of broadcast teams and that being our, our, main, our main profession, I think one of the things that people held HBO in great affection for was just that, the broadcast team. Jim Lampley, as a, as a blow-by-blow guy myself, I think... You know, he was always the one I looked at. Ian Dark over here, I looked at. They, they were my guys. Manny Stewart, rest his soul. Yeah. Larry Merchant, Max yeah. Kellerman. I mean, that is an A team. And people talk about coverage now and how it's... Everybody's wearing different hats depending on who you're working for. Yeah. That wasn't the case at HBO. I don't think anyone could ever really accuse your broadcast team of having having any allegiances. I mean, they would have done because it gets thrown at everybody, but, but that, was, that was such a team. Ross Greenberg used to put the, the, the badge of truth on each broadcaster and tell them, you call it like it is. And Lord knows, Larry Merchant sure called it like it was. Jim Lampley called it like it was. And, you know, we also, if you look back at our broadcast, we almost always had a fighter who was the people's voice. George Foreman was great on those telecasts. Roy Jones, Lennox Lewis, and George in particular. Remember the battles he had with our broadcasters right on air? He and Jim and Larry would go at it, and George would say, nope, this is what the fans think. This is what they want. But uh, there was nothing like those broadcasts because those guys simply told the truth, and that's what the fans wanted to hear. Yeah, and that, that's what it's about, isn't it? We, we talk about this, this this quite a lot, but I just always looked at them and just thought, this is the this is the standard, really. This is how this this is how this should be done. Yeah, I think HBO, in all aspects, not and especially their, their broadcast team, they were the trailblazers. They were the, the standard to beat or to get. How to many times reach. did Harold Letterman call the score better than the guys who were getting paid to keep score that night? Oh, of course, yeah. I forgot about Harold. Yeah, he was another key key part of it too. And you know, we, we've had Al Bernstein and Steve Farhood on the podcast. And I love those guys too. I think they do a yeah. they do a magnificent job. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of people to uh, to to look up to if 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 you're on when you're on your way up. And um, but the HBO team was, you know, they were. Yeah, I mean that you were such a force in boxing that that it's their voices. I think that kind of 
echo the most loudly? I would say up until the last few years when they stepped away, I'd say they were the force, the leading force in boxing. As you said, they probably had more power and clout than anyone. It, you know, we said, he who pays the piper calls the tune. So they were the paymaster. So they had a massive influence. And because they, as, as Mark's told us, felt an obligation to govern the sport correctly with integrity, I thought, the, I thought boxing was in a healthy place back then. Yeah, yeah. And we had very high, said, we had very healthy competition with Southern. I had tremendous respect for them. And I loved their broadcast team also. I thought they did an, they did an excellent job. And... Um, you know, that's what made the sport. We went at it, but we both loved it. We both had great passion. The teams of executives back then on both sides were incredible. They had four, we had four, and we used to go toe-to-toe, head-to-head all the time. And, of course, I thought HBO was the best, and, of course, I thought we won almost all the time. But I still respected those guys, and they did a great job. Yeah, like fighters need a dance partner. It's the same for yeah, everybody, isn't it? Yes, so true. Bring, brings the best out of you. Well, Mark, thanks very much for your time. You've My been pleasure. Very, Thank you, guys. You've been very generous with it. This has been very, very interesting indeed. If we catch you down the road, then we will we will lasso you in for another Part one. Duh. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a 10-parter on this. Easy. No problem at all. Okay, so we'd, uh, we'd better get going because the weigh-in's not too far away. We've got plenty of time. Plenty of time yet. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We will catch you again next time. Yes, that line falls on the right page, not that Mackie's back in Podcast Network.